Welcome to a very special project-centered show as we celebrate Daniel Ellsberg Week, April 24th to 30th, co-sponsored by the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy and Roots Action Education Fund. On the program today, we celebrate whistleblowers in support of a truly free press, from Daniel Ellsberg to Julian Assange. We welcome journalist Kevin Gastola, author of Guilty of Journalism, and in the first segment, we'll hear updates on the Assange case as the U.S. and its allies continue to exert pressure and influence as the WikiLeaks founder languishes in Belmarsh Prison awaiting potential extradition to the U.S. to be tried under the Espionage Act. Then, in the second segment today, we share more from a very special conversation between Kevin Gastola and the one and only Daniel Ellsberg. Ellsberg spoke with Gastola last month on the occasion of the release of Kevin's book, Guilty of Journalism, the political case against Julian Assange. This is part two of that interview. We share it with you in honor of Daniel Ellsberg Week. Stay tuned for the latest Project Censored show. About a criminal minds, political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised under the guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why taxing all the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity, citizens. And the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out to reach all potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program, we are honored to, once again, bring back author Kevin Gastola. He is author of the book, Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange. This is published by the Censored Press and Seven Stories Press. It just came out this spring. Kevin Gastola is also the managing editor over at Shadowproof.com. He does many, many things. He's the curator of the Dissenter Newsletter. He is, as I mentioned already, the managing editor at Shadowproof, where he is a co-founder. Gostola also produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. His work has appeared in outlets such as The Nation, Salon, Common Dreams, and Truthout. He's been a featured guest on Democracy Now!, The Real News Network, Counterspin, Al Jazeera English, and The Chris Hedges Report, among many, many others. Kevin Gastola has been a regular guest on this program for some time because at Project Censored, we've been deeply concerned with the case of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. And we are big supporters of WikiLeaks, big supporters of whistleblowers and the role they play in helping us keep the press truly free and keep information really flowing. And I can't really think of anyone much better than Kevin Gostola, who's been following whistleblower issues going all the way back to Chelsea Manning, has been following this Assange case from the beginning. And in fact, Daniel Ellsberg says Kevin Gostola is a rare journalist who understands the abominable threat that the case against Assange poses to press freedom. Ellsberg says he relies on Gostola's indispensable reporting not only to stay informed about Assange, but to also follow developments in the wider war on whistleblowers. Kevin Gostola, welcome back to the Project Censored show today. Hey, thank you. Well, Kevin, it's been only about a month and a half or so, I believe, since we had you on, and you have more updates around the case of Julian Assange. So there are a number of things going on. He is still in prison in Belmarsh. But again, that's going to be part of your update here. So let's just jump in. And of course, you'll certainly mention your book, Guilty of Journalism. But let's hear some updates and things that are going on with Assange right now. 
But I just want to give a thank you to people who listen to your show and everyone out there who has purchased copies of the book. I'm sure some of them who listen to the show have gotten their hands on a copy. I want to thank them for buying it. And just remind them that doing this as an independent author, it's helpful if you enjoyed the book to go leave a rating on any of the big tech sites like Google or Amazon. As much as we hate them, they do control what we know is out there and available to read. So having people see and realize that this book is available for those who are looking for a guide on Julian Assange's case, you'd give it a great boost if you were reviewing it. So to the updates, the first thing I want to start with was this mobilization of political support that we're seeing to pressure the Biden White House and Attorney General Merrick Garland to drop the charges against Julian Assange. We saw in the last couple of weeks, the letters come from Brazil, from Mexico. There was a letter from Australia and a letter from the UK, from parliamentarians, from people who addressed the Justice Department and made the case that the United States can't claim to stand up for press freedom and at the same time pursue this case against Julian Assange. And on top of that, my good friend and colleague Chip Gibbons over at Defending Rights and Dissent did some work organizing few members in the U.S. Congress, Rashida Tlaib, progressive representative from Michigan, agreed to be the leader on it. And they put together a letter and got seven members of Congress. It's kind of a measly number of people when you think of how many representatives there are. You know, there's 435 in the House of Representatives. But that being said, this is the first letter of its kind to come from Congress. It is a breakthrough that they did this. And in fact, people like Tlaib, Cory Bush, uh, Jamal Bowman, others who added their name to it were attacked. They actually got attacked by whistleblower Alexander Vindman, who did not like that they had lent their support to dropping charges against Julian Assange. So it is not without risk to them politically to put their names on this letter. We know how hostile the culture is within Washington to just recognizing that Julian Assange would have press freedom rights. It's pretty remarkable, given how much the U.S. touts itself as a world leader in freedoms and so forth, freedom of the press being chief among them. It's on one level heartening to see that there's some movement it's, of course, disappointing to see it's so late and so little. But I'm going to sort of hinge on the side more of this is happening. It's on the record. Your book came out just a month or so ago. You just came back from Berlin and from London where you had hoped to do another event. And you've also been on Mint Press with Loki and others. So you've been getting around a little bit. And later in the show, you're going to share with us excerpts of your extended conversation with none other than Dan Ellsberg. We had featured that before, and you're kind enough to share that with us again. So, Kevin Gastola, is there anything you want to report back about your trip to Germany? Within my trip to uh, London, when I was there, I'd like to make sure that those are, who are listening are aware that a colleague, someone who has been a big advocate working for Reporters Without Borders, um, her name is Rebecca Vincent. She is their 
Operations and International Campaigns Director. She, along with Christophe Delawar, who is the Secretary General for Reporters Without Borders and based in Paris, had a breakthrough. Belmarsh Prison had granted them access. They were going to be the first NGO that was allowed to meet with Julian Assange in Belmarsh Prison. And they went to this facility. They flew from Paris and they arrived at the facility. And when they approached to enter, they were denied access. They were blocked. The warden, Jenny Lewis, said, you can't come in. And the staff said that they suspected that Reporters Without Borders might be journalists, so they couldn't come into the prison, which was bizarre because they didn't actually perform the function of journalists at all. They, they defend journalists. That's what they regularly do in their work. And also, the prison had plenty of time to investigate and figure out what Reporters Without Borders was about. So this was not uttered in good faith. This was a bad faith representation made to keep them away. So they reported that back to us that they had been blocked and nobody got to see Julian. And Julian was very angry. That was what Stella Assange, his wife, shared because he was looking forward to speaking with Reporters Without Borders, discussing the way his defense was going, how he was trying to survive in Belmarsh. Effectively, the warden deprived him of an opportunity to meet with allies, to meet with people who are advocates for him. So Kevin Gastola, you and I have talked about this before. And uh, how many years now has he been in Belmarsh? We just marked the fourth anniversary, April 11th. And that was when he was expelled by Ecuador. The British police then came in, dragged him out in a van. He looked unkempt because Ecuador took away his shaving kit. So the pictures that you see of him, where he looks like your random bum on the streets, that was intentional. They were doing that to further the character assassination of Julian Assange. And he was put in a police van and taken to this high security prison that holds terrorists. And he's been there and denied bail ever since. So he's being punished by the state outside of the Ecuadorian embassy issue, where he was basically a prisoner there and they he was being spied upon uh including conversations with his attorneys and others so this is a de facto form of punishment he's already been sentenced to four years without one he's already been punished he's been punished by the process and he's been in legal limbo you mentioned the spying so let me get to that very quickly here we had a response from the U.S. attorney that is representing the Central Intelligence Agency and former CIA director Mike Pompeo in the lawsuit that has been filed against them for their alleged role in surveillance that was conducted against the Ecuador embassy and against Julian Assange and his family, his legal team, other journalists and visitors that came to the Ecuador embassy. Their argument to try and get this case dismissed. So there are two journalists, John Getz from Der Spiegel, Charles Glass, who has done some writing for The Intercept. And then there's two attorneys, Deborah Herbeck and Margaret Ratner Kunstler, who are pushing this case. They are Americans who visited the embassy 
And when they went there, they would go to a checkpoint. And in order to visit Julian, they'd have to give over their personal belongings, their electronic devices. And those were rifled through and dossiers were made about them and they were tracked and heavily monitored. And that information, we believe, was passed back to U.S. intelligence, which would be the CIA. The CIA is now claiming in a brief that none of these people who were Americans that visited Julian Assange had a reasonable expectation for privacy because they were visiting a wanted fugitive who was under prosecution and being investigated for violating the Espionage Act. So you can see how this tangled web that the security state weaves starts with them arguing that it's legitimate to prosecute a journalist. And so once that is there, the next phase is saying anyone who interacts with that journalist who we have deemed a fugitive now loses their privacy rights in talking with that individual. And it doesn't seem to me that that message has gone out far and wide. That seems to be a preposterous stance and one that would draw some pushback, certainly by the press, no. You would think, except the press is not paying attention to this case at all. There is very little coverage of this filing. In fact, you asked me about what I was doing on my trip to Berlin. This filing went up on the Monday before I arrived in Berlin. And I was traveling, I was terribly jet lagged, or I was dealing with getting into Berlin early in the morning. I was on like a red eye flight. And so then I arrived and I learned that this filing had been put up on the docket for the Southern District of New York. And while I had to focus on doing a panel with Stella Assange in Germany, I realized nobody else was covering the story at all. So I had to drop what I was doing while I was in Berlin. And instead of going out to explore Berlin and maybe network with some people, I wrote about this because it was going entirely ignored. And if I didn't write about it, nobody was going to document it. That's pretty amazing. And that's at shadowproof.com. The article's headlined in, in push to dismiss lawsuit, CIA says Americans who visited Assange had no privacy rights. That's incredible. We're speaking with author Kevin Gostola. He is co-founder and managing editor at shadowproof.com, author of Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange, with a foreword by Abby Martin. And that's what we're talking about today. We're getting updates on the Assange case from Kevin Gostola. We will continue our conversation with Kevin after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in the segment, we are talking with author Kevin Gastola. He is the managing editor of Shadowproof.com. He's the author of Guilty of Journalism, the political case against Julian Assange. Kevin, before the break, you were talking about the CIA and some updates on 
how they're basically trying to get themselves out of trouble in, in lawsuits against them. This reminds me, of course, of another issue that you wrote about and that we actually have covered in the Project Censored book. And since we were just talking about the CIA, I needed to bring it up. It is actually in the top 10 censored stories from State of the Free Press 23. It's story number eight. The CIA discussed plans to kidnap or kill Julian Assange. This story was originally published at Yahoo by Michael Isakoff, Sean Naylor, and Zach Dorfman. And in late 2017, the CIA, then under direction of Mike Pompeo, seriously considered plans to kidnap or assassinate WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, according to this investigation. This report featured interviews with more than 30 former U.S. officials, eight of whom detailed U.S. plans to abduct Assange, and three of whom described the development of plans to kill him. According to one former official, discussions of kidnapping or killing Assange occurred at the highest levels of the Trump administration. Kevin Gostola, I'm sure this, no doubt you know of this and have written about it, but this seems to fit the pattern. This should surprise no one given the CIA, how they've been involved, not just in the case with Assange, but against other whistleblowers and in undermining freedom of the press. Kevin Costola. Yeah, and even in a larger sense, I've said that this threat to poison or kidnap Julian Assange is honestly the CIA going back to its roots. I mean, if you think of the anti-colonial leaders that they targeted in the 1960s and even 1950s, they plotted to poison Patrice Lumumba in, in the Congo. This is the CIA doing what has been common for them as an agency to plot to, to eliminate people who they think stand in their way. And you know, fortunately for the United States, Mike Pompeo made the decision in the past week that he is not going to run for president. And we're all better off that he believes he would not be able to secure the Republican nomination. There's one other update I wanted to give, and also just to be consistent. I don't need to say this. I'm not doing this to virtue signal. I actually believe that this is a really important comparison to draw on their other advocates who have been making it. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich was arrested by uh, Russian authorities, and he's in jail right now for engaging in journalism. And I was drawn to what Russian intelligence said about him when they were justifying his detention. And what they accused Evan of doing is what Julian Assange has been accused of doing. They accused him of collecting state secrets. And so I think that he should be freed just as much as Julian Assange should be freed. And I think that this is a moment to try and use both of these cases to defend freedom of the press and to show that if the United States claims that it is an attack on freedom of the press to detain Evan Gershkovich, then they have to concede that it's an attack on freedom of the press to jail Julian Assange. However, if the United States is correct to detain Julian Assange, then there's nothing wrong with Russia detaining a Wall Street Journal reporter for collecting state secrets. So the U.S. has to decide what world it would like to live in. Does it want to live in a world in which people who are deemed adversaries jail Western journalists? Or does it want to live in one in which they can use their example to pressure people to treat journalists 
humanely and, and, and not just humanely, but decently to allow them to do their work. I see the late, great George Carlin behind you. And uh, in one of his quips, I remember he would always say, let's not have a double standard here. One standard will do just fine on his long rant on euphemisms and euphemistic language. Kevin Gastola, we have a little bit of time left in this segment, so I wanted to uh, maybe talk a little bit more about some related matters. I wanted to bring this up because I know you address some of these issues in your book, Guilty of Journalism. Given the Assange case is ongoing, we've done several shows and updates with you in the past year for sure. I get some pushback from some people and from some liberal friends and colleagues that ask me why we so doggedly support Julian Assange. And then they usually run down a laundry list of falsehoods about the sexual assault issues, and which are bogus. But the ones that don't seem to go away, one of the ones that doesn't seem to go away, especially with Democrats, is that somehow he helped the Russians to help defeat Hillary. Can you address some of that? What's the quickest retort to that? That's one of the easiest one-liners that I'll get for people on social media. They won't want to engage in a discussion. They won't actually read your book, but they'll just come back and say, well, I don't need to because Assange colluded with Russia. Assange favored Trump and so on. And I know you unpack this, but can you distill a little bit of that message as a, as a reminder to some of these people as to why they should rethink their position or, or perhaps think about it deeply for the first time? Let me just use whistleblower that I mentioned earlier in this broadcast, Alexander Vindman. He is a liberal who says this about Assange. This was his chief complaint or chief gripe with members of Congress urging the Justice Department to drop charges. He said, this is absurd. Assange was a tool of the Russian state and broadcast United States secrets that endangered Americans. This is a wacky position these representatives are taking. And to him, what I directly replied, and this was on Twitter, was that it's wacky to still claim seven years later that Assange was a tool of Russia when even special counsel Robert Mueller could not substantiate that with evidence. So I think that's the easiest way to respond to it, is that if he was working on behalf of Russian intelligence, well, we would know that very clearly now. And they've they've never said that he did. They've only been able to say that he unwittingly served the interests of Russia by publishing this material that may or may not have come from a cutout. And I'm talking about the Clinton campaign emails that may or may not have come from an intelligence cutout or some go-between that was providing these documents to WikiLeaks. And I, I believe that that settles it. Another thing that settles it is that this case, there are no charges related to what happened in 2016 at all. So if you think that prosecuting him is somehow holding him accountable for 2016, it's not. The Justice Department has not prosecuted him for that conduct. And so you need to recognize that what's at stake here is not what he did then. If you disagree with that, that's fine. You can have that be your hangup with Julian Assange, but you need to see that this is about 2010 and 2011. It's about war crimes that were exposed around Afghanistan and Iraq and the, what the U.S. military's conduct was there, torture and night raids that some of them ended in massacres. Collateral murder video. Exactly. And then the diplomatic cables that showed widespread corruption 
And you don't have to take it from me. Just look at what was the documented response to those cables back in 2011, where you saw in Egypt and Tunisia, people use those documents to throw off the control of dictatorial regimes that had kept them oppressed for so very long. So this is the easiest way to deal with that liberal response. So one more, since we're on the topic, another one that commonly comes up and that I've seen even recently was that in the process of making these some documents public around the 2016 affair connected to the Russia issue is Assange is accused of just willy-nilly releasing documents that unwittingly doxed LGBTQ people in certain communities where they would then be subject to harm by their governments. Are you, you're familiar with that? Vaguely, very vaguely. What I would say is that if there's material that hurts vulnerable people, you know, there was an example in the U.S. diplomatic cables. I don't know if I can address what you said specifically, but what I do remember is that there was a claim that was made against WikiLeaks that they had forced a Ethiopian activist to flee because they had been named in the U.S. cables. And, you know, what I say is that these people who are vulnerable, if, as particularly if we're talking about the cables, the State Department had over six months to help get them to safety if they were going to be in danger because they knew that those documents had been leaked by Chelsea Manning. So it was on them to protect them. So, so WikiLeaks is not responsible for exposing anybody to wrongdoing. You know, the State Department that worked with these people in a country where the government might retaliate against those people, that's something that the State Department had to consider when forming these relationships with these activists or journalists. Again, I'm not excusing those governments for being the way that they were, but I'm saying that like the State Department knew the risks. It's like when you reach out to a source who is in the NSA to get documents about a mass surveillance program, you know in doing so, that might invite retaliation from the NSA and that they could be punished and prosecuted. It's up to you to engage in tradecraft that protects them from being exposed. So yeah, as somehow Assange was blamed, you know, for, for some of these issues. And again, just throwing it out there to, because again, we get a lot of, um, a lot of the pushback that we see about the Assange coverage. It seems to be around these peripheral issues. And again, many of them go back to the 2016 election or the debunked issue of the sexual assault case. And instead of reading the book, your book, or instead of following the case and the significance of it, it just seems easier to sort of snipe at Assange and, and act as if he is guilty as he's sitting in Belmarsh prison. So, Kevin, we have a few minutes left and you are going to share with us in the next segment and you'll set that up for us. You recently spoke with the great Dan Ellsberg from the Pentagon Papers fame. Um, of course, uh, Daniel Ellsberg is, of course, also uh, a follower of your work and uh, gave a great blurb for your book, Guilty of Journalism. You sat down and had a lengthy conversation with him, and we aired part of that on the Project Censored show. You have more uh, material from that conversation to share. And uh, I just wanted you to maybe tell our listeners about that for a couple minutes. Then we're going to take a break and then you'll go ahead and set that up. And we have uh, the next segment where we're going to share your continued conversation with Dan Ellsberg. People might know listening to this broadcast that Dan 
unfortunately had to announce that he was diagnosed with cancer. And so he's coming to terms with uh, being at the end of his life. And I think timed with this life announcement, the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy and the Roots Action Education Fund are holding a Dan Ellsberg week. When you listen to this show, it will be happening from April 24th to 30th, honoring Dan, celebrating his work, fighting for peace, and supporting whistleblowers. And there are going to be many organizations that are paying tribute to Dan, and there are going to be many different individuals who are sharing their moments and memories with Dan and honoring the issues he's fought for. This are the parts that were left out, some of the parts left out of an earlier interview that was broadcast, and you'll hear him speak about some things that he's not shared before, but also some things that are familiar that he's spoken a little bit about before. And again, this is just a way to celebrate him. And also it's my way of showing him thanks because he's done a lot to boost what I do. Having his name on the back of the book gives what I did with Guilty of Journalism a lot of authority. And I'm really gracious to him that he spent over an hour talking with me to help me launch the book. Because that conversation that we did was part of a book launch in which it was easier to share the book with a wide audience. Indeed. And we're honoring Dan Ellsberg's work by airing this show during this certainly well-deserved accolades and appreciation and celebration of Dan's life while he's still here to appreciate that and receive that kind of thanks for so many things that he's done for so long. He's now just turned 92, is it? He's 92. So, and Kevin, you had a fantastic interaction with him, and I'm just really grateful that you're going to, in the next segment, set up and share some more of that conversation. It's both, it's certainly a celebration of Dan Ellsberg, but for me and for us at Project Censored, Kevin, it's also a celebration of you and your great work supporting whistleblowers and being the kind of journalist that you are. And we have great appreciation for you and your work. Guilty of Journalism, the political case against Julian Assange with a foreword by Abby Martin of the Empire Files, cartoons by the great Mr. Fish. You can get this book at your favorite independent bookstore. You can learn more at Censored Press or Seven Stories Press. Kevin Gastola, one last word from you. Where can people go and find your work and follow it? You can go to thedissenter.org to find a newsletter with all the latest updates on Julian Assange's case. And that was my conversation with Kevin Gastola, managing editor of Shadowproof, with updates on Julian Assange. Next up on the program, I share a very special conversation, part two, between journalist Kevin Gastola and whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, in honor of Daniel Ellsberg Week. Stay tuned. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. The military and the monetary get together whenever they think it's necessary. They turn our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning the planet to a cemetery. The military and the monetary use the media as intermediaries. They are determined to keep the citizens secondary. They make so many decisions that are arbitrary. Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Gastola, managing editor for Shadowproof.com, the curator of the Dissenter newsletter, and the author of Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange. This week is Daniel Ellsberg Week, and I'm here to present to you 
an interview that consists of clips that were left out of a previously broadcast conversation between myself and Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. Daniel Ellsberg is someone who, of course, has been a foremost peace activist, as well as a whistleblower, and a whistleblower who has shown support for numerous whistleblowers who have come forward in the past few decades in the United States. And so the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy and the Roots Action Education Fund are putting on this week of education and action in his honor. And I can think of no better way to celebrate him than to share clips from this interview. And so here you will hear him speak about Abe Rosenthal and the New York Times and his collaboration with them, his interactions with them as a source. And then he will pull from his uh, recollections of Richard Nixon, who was targeting him. And from there, he speaks about the Constitution and the way in which U.S. presidents have viewed the law. Abe Rosenthal, the editor of the New York Times at the time, managing editor, did a wonderful job getting this through and getting the documents in, despite the fact that he supported the war. And I don't give him credit for that, but I give him a lot of credit as a newsman for getting this stuff out, despite the fact that it contradicted policies he'd supported. Uh, a friend of mine on the Times informed me that Abe Rosenthal hated me. How could that be? Well, first, I'm an anti-war activist. He didn't, he didn't respect any of them. He was for the war. So as an establishment person, he didn't like the Barrigans. He didn't like uh, anybody. He didn't like David Harris. And he didn't like me. But more important than that, he was furious at me, I was told very authoritatively, because by revealing my identity to Walter Cronkite, while the FBI was searching for me, I had taken the attention away from the New York Times. It became a Daniel Ellsberg story to a considerable extent. Instead of a, we have this anonymous source, a reason I think why they love their sources to be anonymous. Obviously, it's for the benefit of the source to a large extent, but it turns out also for the press. They don't have to share attention, again, you know, from their revelations to the source. And in that case, now I, I said to the person I was talking to, I'd always made it clear to Neil Sheehan on the Times that if I were indicted, which was almost certain, but not quite certain, I was not aware of any indictments. But I assumed there had been and that I just didn't happen to be aware of them. But I assumed if there's been so few that I, even I don't know about them from being in the government for a decade, and seeing a lot of leaks, they must have known the source in a number of those cases. Others, they didn't. But often they must have known who the source was, and they didn't seem to indict him, as far as I could see. I didn't know that that was for constitutional reasons, that they felt they didn't have a British-type official secrets act, which would have made it clear-cut. And they don't. The British, uh, who didn't have our war of independence, our revolution, do have an official secrets act. And they do have officially a monarch who cannot be impeached. He's above the law. So we made some advances, I would say, in terms of freedom and democracy in our war of independence. And because we don't have, as you point out in your book, right at the beginning, 
We do not have a British type official secrets act, which criminalizes any and all release of protected information that they don't want out. No intent involved, just did you do it, you know, and so forth. Now, that's the way they're using the Espionage Act since my case, and above all by Obama and then Trump and now Biden. Obama bringing three times as many prosecutions as all previous presidents put together. Now, that was a small number. I was the first. There were two others before Obama, three. He brought nine prosecutions, and Trump brought that many in his first term, in his one term. So why not? Why no prosecute? Because the lawyers always told them, we don't have an official secrets act. With Nixon, they experimented. Here they had a guy who put out 7,000 top secret pages. And when they came after me with the FBI, and they were about to arrest me. I'd always said, I will then reveal myself. I don't want to wave a red flag at them. I did not reveal myself until they were going after me. If they had chosen not to do that, which I thought there must be political reasons for doing, I was not aware of the constitutional reasons. I didn't know anything about the Constitution. I worked for the president. I had the impression, like nearly all government officials, that puts us beyond the Constitution. My loyalty has to be to my agency, my department, and ultimately the president. And that's an almost universal belief among officials, and it's totally wrong. The oath we take, every officer, I as a Marine officer, I'd taken this oath, every member of Congress, every government employee takes an oath not to the president, not to secrecy. You don't take an oath to secrecy. You sign a non-disclosure agreement, essentially. You take an oath to support the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And, uh, of course, Nixon said, in connection with my case, he'd been asked about the burglary into my former psychoanalyst's office by David Frost. And he said, wasn't that illegal? And the president made this classic statement. When the president orders it, when the president does it, it's not illegal. It's not against the law. Now, that's a different constitution from ours. But I don't think, I don't have the sense that Nixon had the systemic desire to change our former government. I could be wrong on that. He was constructing a kind of secret police of which the plumbers were a part. But the uh, pursuit of drug people, for example, and other. Let me take back. Uh, maybe Nixon was a little more uh, unconstitutional than I was thinking. In this next clip, you'll hear Daniel Ellsberg speak about Henry Kissinger and the way in which he interacted with journalists. You'll hear Daniel Ellsberg recognize that, unfortunately, the former Secretary of State will probably outlive him. And you'll hear him address the system of classified information that creates the culture of access journalism that serves the powerful elites because they're able to dole out leaks that give journalists the exclusives they want without having to reveal too much corruption that is ongoing by the U.S. government. Why is so much classified, which is perfectly obvious that it doesn't need to be classified if it gets exposed, 
of entry by a Freedom of Information Act or something, the media never addresses that I've ever seen. Why was this secret? Why is this classified? They're putting it out. They reveal it as newsworthy. It's in the public interest to know this. Has any official ever been asked, what gave you the right to hold this from the public all this time? It seemed never to ask the question, how complicit were we in this process? How easy was it to fool us? And exactly who did it? And how was it done? Now, in many cases, they don't know exactly who did it. Kissinger was giving backgrounders that I used to say, backgrounders anyway, a method of lying to journalists without attribution, you know, background only and so forth. The yeah, presidential statements to the public are sort of lying to the public. And then Kissinger would come out and lie to the journalists. And they knew that. Why did no one ever either ask him, as far as I know, why did you lie? Or what made, made you think you had the right to lie? And what was behind this lie? Who ordered, et cetera, et cetera. That breaks your relationship with Kissinger, who once said, Daniel Ellsberg is the most dangerous man in America. He must be stopped at all costs. And it was, uh, that was behind efforts to uh, totally incapacitate me into things. Efforts which were considered against Assange, as we now know, and you know, you tell in your book. The Assange case, you must have been there when the, the Spanish testimony came in, that uh, they had overheard every statement he made, he had recorded, and turned over to the CIA every statement he was making to his lawyers and his doctors. And uh, even when he took them into the bathroom to get away from what might be recording machines, there was a recording machine in the bathroom. That one was in the fire extinguisher. So they were hearing that, and they were discussing kidnapping him. We started this program, uh, Kevin, by mentioning how he was dragged out of the embassy, which was yep. a, a despicable act by the British Empire. If Julian were being tried in a British court directly, not just for extradition, he would clearly have violated the British Official Secrets Act. But in America, his indictment is very problematic because without an Official Secrets Act, it seems blatantly unconstitutional against the First Amendment to the Constitution to be indicting a journalist. So we go back, is he a journalist? Well, Bill Keller says, no, no. We don't have to worry about Julian Assange because he's not one of us. But everybody else in the world, pretty much, including every journalistic association, recognizes him as a new form in the era of digital journalism. So it clearly is a violation of the First Amendment. Judge Barrett, sir, in Britain, what does she know? The American Constitution, that's not her business. She's looking at a guy who would clearly be criminal in Britain, a living relic of their imperial age. And uh, it's what an empire needs, because to stay an empire, they have to do a lot of things that are not just illegal, but immoral, evil, torture, overthrow democratic governments, sponsor assassinations, things that would raise an eyebrow among their own citizens. They encourage a notion that always, we're the good guys, or at least not as bad as those other guys. That's the an imperial mode, which does apply in America. 
You're listening to a conversation between journalist Kevin Gastola and whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. This is part two of that conversation. Part one will be linked at projectcensored.org. You can find it on our website or at the bottom of the tag for today's program. Stay tuned for more between Gastola and Ellsberg in honor of Daniel Ellsberg Week. You know, people would ask me, how is the press doing? I say, well, there's two ways to answer that. One is, how are they doing? Terribly, but better than any other institution. Look at the Supreme Court in recent years, Congress, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. So the press looks better than any of those. The other way of saying that is, they're better than any other institution but terribly. They're doing terribly. After Vietnam, the Gulf War, and then for the Iraq War. In each case, they were as misled by the executive, as willingly, as easily, as in Vietnam. There was no improvement there. The government has even found new ways to suppress truth in the press, but they go along with it pretty easily. I'm making points that I have not made publicly before, but let me let me make this one. I've long felt there was really a symbiosis between the press and the government on the question of the classification system. The media have never really looked into why are things classified and how much of them, how much of them deserve to be classified? How does the system really work? Let me first say what I just said, the symbiosis. I think they accept the secrecy system as it stands pretty well. It was, I think, not Bill Keller, but a, a predecessor of his. Maybe it was on the Post. Maybe it was Ben Bradley, who said, we try to get secrets. They try to keep them. It's an adversarial process. It works out pretty well. It does not work out pretty well if you want to be a republic and not a monarchy or an empire. If you want to be a democracy, not at all. It works terribly. In that position, the press does not get remotely the information the public needs. And in a timely way, when they can act on it. The secrecy system is, to a large extent, meant to delay the publication of secrets to a point where the public can't do anything about it or no longer cares or it's a past issue. It's not to keep it secret forever, even though some secrets are kept very, very long. I think the press, the people, the reason they're quite happy with that system is that it gives them a lot of leaks, a lot of... What's the word? Scope. It gives them a scoop which others don't get, not only because it has been classified, because it remains classified for everybody else. So it is an exclusive. And next week, it's somebody else. But that's all right, because if you're a good boy and you print the story the way they want, in the context they want, with the spin they want on it, you'll get another scoop eventually. It's not as though they're putting this stuff out to a press conference because everybody gets it at the same time. So you have no exclusive here. But if you get a leak or in a background, or this is just for you, the people who have been brought into this particular room, this particular time, no attribution. That's a way of lying to journalists. And it works very, very well because they don't object to it. They don't investigate it. They don't hold anybody accountable. 
Was I held accountable for having kept those secrets for years? No, I was put on trial only for putting them out eventually. So the secrecy system that they don't investigate, where this burden of proof is on anybody who reveals this stuff because it might endanger national security. Now, in this final clip, you'll hear Daniel Ellsberg speak about the Espionage Act, the way in which Donald Trump and Joe Biden have been both found to have mishandled classified information because there were documents found to have in their possession. And he'll speak about the way each political party would like to bludgeon their political opponents with this law. And in his opinion, that has made it impossible for Julian Assange to get a fair trial. Let's come right up to the present here. Julian's case, I think, has been very greatly prejudiced in terms of extradition and of ever winning a trial or getting indictment by what's come out about Trump's having classified material in his house, followed by Biden and then by Pence. Each party now loves the Espionage Act as it stands in its unconstitutional form as a weapon with which to bludgeon their opponent, the Republican. When Trump was found to have classified information of all the crimes he has committed and sins and everything, that was one Ah, the Espionage Act. Now we have him legally, clearly honest. The Democrats loved that. And I could see at that point, I was even told by somebody who I'd been working with, with a bunch of lawyers, to amend the Espionage Act. Tulsi Gabbard, actually, in her final days, put out a very good set of amendments, which these lawyers had worked on, allowing somebody under the Espionage Act to testify as to why she did it or he did it and what the impact was, and what the expected damage, and what the actual damage was, and to bring witnesses on that, all of which was forbidden to me and every other person who has been tried under this. As you point out in your book, excellent book, a strict liability act, motive, intent, is not a part of it, uh, except the motive to put it out. But why you're putting it out, it's not to be brought to the jury, as the prosecutor said in my case, why he objected to my saying, answering the question, why did you copy the Pentagon Papers? Objection. Irrelevant. And no other witness has been able to say that, meaning that no one can get a fair trial on the things, even Trump or Biden, without being able to tell the jury why they did what they did. The jury doesn't have to believe them. The jury can rule against them. The jury's a pretty good truth indicator. It's not perfect, but pretty good on telling when somebody's lying. You don't get a chance to see whether this person is lying or not. With Trump, the presumption is that he is lying. And no president is free of that suspicion. Mm -hmm. As I.F. Stone says, they all lie. And that is true. Trump, he doesn't seem to have a concept of the difference between truth and lying, as far as, as I can tell. But even so, I looked at that and said to myself, I yield to no one as a critic of Donald J. Trump. But I had to look at that, not just in a self-serving way. I've sort of invited prosecution twice in the last year, actually. So I can't say I'm beyond it all. But Trump, the very fact that he had top secret stuff here in his sermons means he's a criminal who should be in front of Every page of the Pentagon Papers I put up 
I held it. I retained it. It doesn't mean I'm innocent, but it doesn't mean that Trump is necessarily more guilty than I am. And the mm-hmm. same is true of Biden or any of these other people. The Espionage Act is an unfair and miscarriage of justice applied to anybody just for holding classified material. I was told there's no chance now of amending the Espionage Act to exclude the ridiculous plain language which would cover every reader of the New York Times who fails to turn over that information, classified information, to a proper person, his copy of the New York Times here, to some authorized person to read this classified material in the New York Times. Now, that's blatantly crazy and certainly unconstitutional in this country, but there it is in the the plain language. So it's always been there to be used against journalists or now presidents. I'm sorry that I go back and forth so much, but it is the case I was told, forget it now on amending this thing. The Democrats like it just the way it is against Trump. And then weeks later, the Republicans discover back into his partnership with Pence at the defense council table here, it'll be, I suppose. Well, Biden wasn't, wasn't inclined to let him go anyway. He regarded, wasn't it Assange, he said, was a... a high-tech terrorist. High-tech terrorist. I he actually used the same word that Mitch McConnell had. Bipartisanship in Washington, D.C. Uh, I have revealed this year, in respect to Assange, that I had all the information that Chelsea Manning revealed to Assange before it was published. I said that to the BBC. I suppose others would have said it too, but it happened to be an interview about secrecy and so forth. So I mentioned that to the BBC, knowing that, again, it would say, you can't non-selectively prosecute Julian Assange for what he did without prosecuting me. And apparently, they've been reluctant to do that. At least I haven't heard from the Justice This was months ago. So they choose who they go after, and Julian was the one they chose. And for reasons you go into your book, in part because he had been shamed and accused and condemned by press. And they could count on this was a guy who would not be defended by the press until just now, when they just noticed that, uh-oh, the hot breath is, is on our throats too, which I've been telling them for 50 years. I've been saying, this is not just misused against sources like me. The plain language of this act, for whatever reason, some scholars call it sloppy drafting or whatever, but for some reason, it applies very broadly, definitely to journalists. When, and you say in your book, your terrific book, Kevin, when you say the Justice Department claims that the plain language applies to journalists, I would have put it a little stronger. They're right on that. Anybody can read it. The plain language does apply to journalists and publishers and readers who pass it on among each other. It can be used very, very broadly. And I've been saying, you're... You're going to, this is, hasn't been used against you guys. I've said this to huge convocations of journalists. It hasn't been used yet, but it will be. And you mm-hmm. should be looking into the constitutional aspects of that. And they haven't. So another performance of terrible. Unless the U.S. press and the world press 
becomes better than they have in the past. They've been indispensable. The Times is indispensable reading for me. But if I relied only on the Times, it would be incredibly inadequate for understanding what's going on in foreign policy and defense policy and classified matters, generally in nuclear matters. So it's got to do better or we won't survive the policies we've been pursuing now for a long time. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.